You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. We all have a desire for better outcomes in our lives, and whether we're talking about better relationships, better job satisfaction, or better investment decisions, or maybe possibly all of the above, Outcomes are always the result of actions that we take, and those actions are a product of thought. It's not possible to take an action without preceding thought. So thinking, and a better thinking in particular, is therefore ground zero for success or lack thereof. Today I've got Jeffrey Anello from Farnham Street Blog, who is passionate about this topic, and his website, farnhamstreetblog.com, has a treasure trove of it information on the topic. I've got Jeff on the line and selfishly I've got quite a lot of questions for for you Jeff. Welcome. Hey Chris. So do you want to give me a, very briefly a quick background around why Farnham Street blog exists and then as I mentioned I have a, a number of questions that I'm keen to dig into today. Sure. Um, Farnham Street was actually start so for those of you who don't know what Farnham Street refers to, Farnham Street is the street in Omaha, Nebraska that uh, Berkshire Hathaway Inc. is located on. Um, the offices that Warren Buffett has been working out of since, I believe, the 60s, so going on 50-some-odd years now. Um, Farnham Street was started by Shane Parrish in 2010, and uh, it, it was started around the time Shane was working on his MBA and realized that he was not learning in his MBA what he thought he would be learning about decision-making and about business and about a lot of topics. And he sort of uh, went on this path of self-education and started Farnham Street as a sort of an outlet to discuss his self-education and and uh, post interesting clips of things he had read and so on. And as these things happened, a, a hobby turned into a, you know, he, he had a, eventually a, a lot of people began following the blog and, and who were doing the same thing, trying to make themselves better and smarter and wiser. And uh, I had been fortunate to know Shane back then and throughout the years. And and so uh, I've watched Farnham Street grow. And last year I came on uh, at, to help uh, grow Farnham Street and, and help write and add content and it's just been wonderful. So um, <clears throat> um, Farnham Street's real focus is on, you know, our, uh, mastering the best of what other people have already figured out. Uh, we don't claim any original ideas, but what, what we're really trying to do is expose people to the great ideas that are already out there and, and learn how to synthesize with them. And uh, so that's where we're at. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, so I, unfortunately, I've only come across your blog roughly about two months ago, and I've been devouring a lot of the content on it. I wish I'd known about it previously, but certainly the topic is one that's not unfamiliar to, um, I think, to most most professionals that are attempting to do to be better in um, in their own sectors. So there was um, there was an article, Jeff, which yeah, you wrote called "Avoiding Stupidity is Easier Than Seeking Brilliance," and it really resonated with me because this is this is pretty much the opposite of what you normally sort of hear. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that particular article and, and what um, what your thoughts on that were. So the idea that the idea for that article came from Charlie Munger, uh, who was Warren Buffett's partner at Berkshire Hathaway. And, you know, Charlie used to say frequently that all he wants to know is where he's going to die. So he never goes there. And that's a sort of an easy way to say that 
inverting the problem, turning it around, uh, is very frequently a better way to to answer something than to try and do it in an inductive way. So, you know, neither Shane or I are geniuses, and most people who are out there operating in the world are not geniuses either. And so, we're not really trying to chase genius. Uh, what we're trying to do is get less stupid. And uh, what you'll find in the process of getting less stupid is that you you have room to accumulate some wisdom. And if you're somebody who avoids mistakes regularly and avoids some of the, the folly that other people are engaging in, uh, you'll find that you kind of get ahead by accident. And, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a hugely powerful idea. Now, on the flip side, you, you know, we're, we're always seeking models of success and things that work, too. We're not, we try not to be myopically focused on the idea of avoiding mistakes, but both sides of the ledger are incredibly important. And, and the avoiding mistakes part uh, frequently gets ignored in the pursuit of success. And so, you know, I think it doesn't matter what field you're in, you, you can uh, go a long way by, by trying to avoid failure. There's one of the other things that um, crops up just as you're speaking there was when you find a mistake, um, there's two ways that you can handle that that issue. One is you can ignore and put your head in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist because often it's a it's something that, well, if it's a mistake, it's something that you've done wrong. And so there's a realization that you're not as smart as you may have wished or believed that you are. And we're all, you know, humans are by, by our very nature, we're very vain people. And so vanity has um, a large impact on how we, um, how we deal with uncomfortable situations. In terms of avoiding stupidity, you can have things uh, take place whereby um, you, you'll make a mistake and if you don't acknowledge that mistake and if you don't learn from it then you're no wiser in fact you're um, you're compounding your stupidity and one of the um, one of the books that um, I really enjoyed um, even though it was a very difficult read was The Alchemy of Finance by George Soros as much as I don't necessarily agree with his political views he's he has a, a philosoph philosophical mindset which um, came out of the, the teachings of Karl Popper. And that was one whereby he was actively seeking to find not necessarily what was correct, but what was wrong in an assumption. And so he had to come up with an assumption which naturally believed was correct. Otherwise, there was no point in uh, reaching that conclusion. But then he would uh, aggressively attack that at all times in order to to um, to find um, any elements that could be wrong with it, and when he did find something that was wrong with it, um, he'd, he'd be overjoyed in actually finding that error, um, because for him it was a matter of reducing risk. And so, I think it's a, it's an incredibly different way of going about uh, reviewing risk and reviewing um, uh, decision making, um, and clearly that. That has been incredibly successful. He's one of the most um, revered and um, well-known investment fund managers in the world's history. Um, and it and it does. It comes back to that, um, that topic that Charlie Munger speaks of of avoiding stupidity. Um, so you know, um, finding what was wrong as opposed to um, looking at constantly what was right and um, patting yourself on the back. Another part of this that we learned from Munger was he likes to say, I never let myself hold an opinion unless I know the other side of the opinion better than that person does. So, which is a very rigorous way of training yourself out of 
two pretty natural biases that we have. The first being first conclusion bias, which is we tend to stick to the first conclusion that pops into our head. And the second being confirmation bias, which is that we tend to look for ways to confirm the first conclusion. Okay. And those work very well together to create a lot of problems in our head where we don't really understand things because, you know, we sort of hit on the first idea and then we look for ways to confirm it. Whereas what good science really does is it takes a hypothesis and then sort of bombards it from all angles. What you're trying to do with any scientific idea is destroy it. And in the process of trying to attack the idea, you either confirm it and strengthen it by not being able to, or you beat the idea and you find a better idea. And, um, you know, that's how you get from Newtonian physics to Einstein physics. And, and you know, there are a lot of physicists out there that are trying to come up with a more fundamental idea than relativity um, and quantum me- quantum mechanics. So it's not that those ideas are wrong. It's just by attacking them, we'll find better ones. And so I think those are two sides of the same coin. You can kind of take that principle and adopt it in your own in your own brain. Um, and, and it's very hard to do. There are very, very few people can do it effectively. But the one and one guy who did it very effectively was Darwin. Uh, Darwin was dogged in pursuing uh, evidence that didn't confirm his ideas that in fact uh, were disconfirming of his ideas. And he made mental notes and physical notes of those things over and over. And he collected so much disconfirming data that eventually came up with such a powerful idea that, you know, here we are 150 years later, it's been expanded upon a bit, but it still uh, is uh, correct in the foundation of modern biology. Yeah. I love the reference you have to Darwin because I think that's, it's a, a very clear example of how to actually go about attacking any particular thesis and, and just creating that level of thinking which produces those results so and it's almost circular in motion in that what darwin was was speaking about um has this that whole evolutionary um uh, transition is also one which we're actually talking about here with respect to you know avoiding stupidity for example with munger and things like that you have the people that rise to the top in any particular sector of um, uh, of society are essentially you know, there's essentially a Darwinistic um, structure in place there, and of course there's other you know um, outside factors that that um, either allow genius to um, to prevail or to um, come to fruition, and if the you know if the if the environment is not right for that, then then it doesn't take place. But certainly, um, that that whole Darwinistic approach still exists with respect to um, you know a continuation of thinking, which is how man has actually um, you know gotten ourselves out of the cave and um, uh, expanded our knowledge about the universe and expanded our knowledge about our surroundings, the chemicals in it, and everything else. Yeah. So there's a book that came out last year called Sapiens. I don't know if you've read it by a professor in Israel. And in Sapiens, which is a, it's a really a, a, an amazing book, sort of in the vein of like a Jared Diamond style, big, big history, big synthesis uh, work, which, which sounds like it could go off the rails, but actually he, he keeps it together very well. And in Sapiens, the, the professor who wrote the book said, the scientific revolution was the process of human beings discovering their own ignorance. Once we discovered our own ignorance and a method for reducing our ignorance, only then did we start making the sort of exponential progress that we've made over the last few hundred years. Um, you know, somebody who would have 
gone to sleep, you know, gone to sleep in the year uh, 400 AD and woke up in the year 1200 AD would have not come into a world that was drastically different than the one that they left. Um, they would recognize much of what they saw. But a person who went to sleep in 1600 AD and woke up in 2000 AD would have would have no idea where they were. It would be like a foreign planet. And there's a big, big difference in those two uh, those two outcomes. And he attributes it to our discovery of our own ignorance and the, and the process to remove that ignorance. And if you think about that, that has a lot to do with what Charlie Munger is saying about sort of, you know, getting less stupid and removing your own ignorance, um, it, you know, being the sort of the primary driver of getting smarter, getting wiser. Yes, yeah, so if you think through the steps of, I guess, uh, firstly, acknowledging that you have, have ignorance. Um, it's interesting, when we were speaking yesterday, um, Jeff, you, came, you, you mentioned um, standing on the top of a train with a baseball, right? Mm. And you're, you're racing down the track and you're maybe doing 80 miles an hour. And to you, the baseball is stationary. But to somebody on the platform, the, sta- the, the baseball is doing 80 miles an hour. So the, the, the points of angle that you view that you, the particular situation from can vary dramatically, which, which kind of... Um, brings in uh, up another topic which i wrote about fairly recently and i was mentioning that because i was going back and looking at um, revolutionary and disruptive sorts of technologies that have changed the world and it was quite interesting in that um the the people involved in um creating those particular technologies very very rarely come from the existing channels um or from the existing um uh, environment. So, if I was to give you an example, you've got um, the gentleman who created AirBreadAndBreakfast.com, and they were not from the hotel industry at all, um, but yet they disrupted the hotel industry. Um, and furthermore, the people, you know, if you were, if you were the um, chairman of, say, the Marriott Group, and you were looking around, sort of six, seven years ago, saying, you know, what is the threat to my business model, and um, and who are my major competitors? It's highly unlikely that you would have. It's almost impossible that you would have actually identified a bunch of twenty-something-year-old uh, kids sitting in their in their flat designing a, a website that literally has now sort of taken on and and competes with um, global hotel chains. That's that sort of external factor, and I don't know if it's ever possible, but for anybody that's trying to determine a better level of doing something, whether it be in your own business or whether it be in um, relationships or something like that, there's this, there's this huge, hugely powerful factor in order to, to step outside of um, the trees, so to speak, in order to see the forest. And I wonder how you would think about going about achieving that if it at all achievable i know you've mentioned that you have a, a set daily number of pages that you read for example um, and certainly broadening your knowledge is is one step to to doing that so i was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about that what you're talking about is very hard to do um you know i call this uh, you know it's basically rel- taking the concept of relativity and applying it trying to apply it elsewhere so you, know, you talked about the person on the train platform sees the, the baseball going at 80 miles per hour but if you're on the train you know you're holding the ball Seems like the, the ball is not moving at all, right? And that's because, you know, when we're looking at someone else's system, we see it very differently than we see our own, which is why it's much easier to give other people advice <laughs> than it is to take your own advice. We all see other people struggling with relationships, and very easily we were able to come up with a diagnosis for why other people's relationships aren't working, but somehow uh, we can't seem to figure out why our own relationships don't work. 
you know, it's just uh, there's this problem of being inside a system and not being able to see it. And, you know, you talked about the hotel industry. I think the probability that the people who run Marriott or Starwood would have seen and come up with the Airbnb style business model is, you know, approaching zero because the economics of that business are so different from the, the economics of the hotel business. Um, it, you know, it's sort of they would have had to cannibalize their own business. And that, that's a very rare thing. If the idea even ever surfaced in the organization, which it may have, uh, I know, for example, the idea of providing video over over the internet came up in Blockbuster's organization many, many years ago before Netflix, but they were never able to execute on it. So, you know, you know, I, I think the first step is to understand that this is a problem and that everybody deals with it. Then that's just part of human nature. From there, you know, you sort of have to work to design systems to help yourself beat it. And I think, you know, what you were talking about was the amount of, you know, broadening your knowledge. I think that's certainly a big piece of it. I mean, you can help yourself along by not siloing yourself in whatever field that you belong in. You know, if you're a, you know, an English professor, and you stick to only reading English literature, or if you're a a surgeon and, and you stick to medical literature or if you're a, an investor and you stick to annual reports and so on and you know those things are needed for your specialty but if you never really broaden yourself it gets very very difficult to see outside your own system so if you're an investor who also understands you know the basic precepts of physics and of biology and of statistics and the major lessons of history and so on i think that it's not an impossible task and you could be much more effective that at seeing outside your system because you're not so siloed in that in that narrow in that narrow area so and, and the last one you know i think you have to be you have to be soliciting uh advice and soliciting opinions from people who don't belong to your your system and your worldview and sometimes you do that directly by asking and, and getting to know people but but a lot of it can be done through reading just by, you know, sort of reading, uh, you know, read books, read articles, read things by people who you don't agree with, who don't belong to your worldview at all. Um, is it is it that you're going to adopt their world, their worldview? Doubtful. But but you're going to if you pursue it with a certain amount of intellectual honesty, you may pick up some things that you wouldn't have been able to otherwise. And that's what you know, obviously, that's the reason why most people's political leanings and so on only tend to be intensified over time there you know I, very few people uh go you know switch their their political ideology at any point in their life uh, and this goes for other strong ideologies because there's a point where there's no coming back where you've drowned yourself in so much confirmation that you'll, you'll probably never change your mind so you know if you, if you can head that off at the pass as early as possible and as disciplined as possible then you know there's there's a chance that you can get ahead of the game yeah it's um you're really correct in terms of that broadening your mindset to include people of a maybe a political environment that's different to that which you subscribe to. But the same is true in terms of language. It's in, it's true in terms of music, all sorts of things. And it's been proven that our um, neurological pathways are um, are activated when um, when we actually basically stress test them. It's like a muscle, right? And so um, there's a whole long sort of list of um, Things that you can do to um, to actually um, engage your brain. Uh, I wrote an article about it recently, and you know one of those one of those things um, is you know travel, and it's um, it's joining organisations that are vastly different and puts you in a in a basically in an uncomfortable position. So if you're a, let's say you're a 
Catholic, you might go to a Buddhist ceremony or a shrine or something like that, and just to expose yourself to the other ideas. But coming back, I'm jumping around a little bit, but one of the things that we're talking about with um, uh, you know, companies, for example, that don't see technology or things like that um, that are going to disrupt them, there's a famous example of Kodak. And everybody today knows that you know your smartphone has got digital photography on it and that, that entire business has exploded. It's why, you know, it's why we have Instagram and all these other um, Flickr and you know, literally hundreds of different um, file uh, or photo sharing sites. And it's, um, you know, so nobody ever um, takes a photograph anymore with original photography where you're putting it into a dark room and things like that. But the interesting part is that Kodak actually invented and first uh, realized the potential of digital photography. But they actually um, put it aside. They made an executive decision um, to, to not pursue it. And that was because it basically threatened their existing business model. Um, and, um, you know, that was interesting because you know today Kodak doesn't exist, and it doesn't exist because they made that decision. So there was this this confirmation of the status quo that that was working, and there was a strong incentive to to enjoy that and to stay with it, um, even though it was there was there was something on the horizon which they could see had massive potential, and um, they decided not to actually do it. So there's you know there's a there's a there's a number of different sort of um, mind beams that take place one is the confirmation bias the other is really just um you know um can't think of what the word is for it but it's looking for um it's uh, an affirmation of um something which you want to take place and i you know i i i've been guilty of this in the past when i first started trading as a um, professional trader is having uh, having a particular viewpoint on a market and having the market moving uh, to your advantage and then finding and searching for more and more reasons why you're correct instead of searching for more and more reasons why you're incorrect because then your analysis of risk is it's quite myopic because you're not actually analyzing risk you're no longer looking for risk you're actually looking for confirmation of why you're right and that uh, it's a little bit like walking into um, the lion's den and just looking around for where the lions are not as opposed to looking where they are which um <laughs> it's clearly not a smart move so yeah you, you know you bring up an interesting point when it came to something like kodak which is that to sort of expand on that kodak did eventually realize that they would have needed to move into digital photography and it, i believe it happened in the early 2000s they they started to push more heavily into that business uh, i'm sure a lot of people would argue that they were too late at that point but um the, the hard thing about investing and about the world is that a lot of companies wake up and realize that the world has changed uh, so deeply that, and, and the usual result, even if they do realize that the world has changed and that they must change, the usual, usual result is that they still fail um, because it's, it's very difficult for a business who's dominated one sort of business model to adapt the model to, to the new world and dominate in another way. And, and just to give you an example of that, you know, uh, you know, the, the newspapers knew 25 years ago that they were beginning to be disrupted by a, a different world of technology. And yet look how many newspapers were able to successfully make the, make the move. Really the, the mental model at play here is that when the world changes, a lot of businesses really are, are the, the only thing that's going to happen to them is they're going to die. 
And a lot of businesses, really, there's very little they can do about it. Um, and many businesses can do something about it and many try and some have been very successful. I mean, I, I use the example, a lot of General Electric, which started out as a, a you know, electric light manufacturer and look at it now, or IBM, which was, you know, started in a host of businesses that are, have nothing to do with what it really with what it do, does now and Berkshire Hathaway, which was a textile mill and so on. So there are, there are examples of businesses that have made the adaption, but they would be dwarfed by the examples of businesses that weren't able to do it. So I think there's an interesting model to have in your head of uh, sort of is the world changing to such a degree that the business, even if they try, still won't be able to to adapt. It's it's interesting. I mean, disruption very rarely in any sector that I've investigated takes place from a top-down perspective. It always takes place from bottom up in terms of newer um, companies coming in and disrupting the existing architecture. Um, It never takes place from... Um, the existing architecture, looking around, going, "Oh, this is this is not right. We should, you know, we should be better, and um, we're going to change things." So, if you take, for example, um, something that most people would understand quite easily, if you think of a political climate, um, political uh, infrastructure, whatever it might be, let's let's use some fairly drastic examples, maybe communism as opposed to democracy. Communism. I can't think of an example where you've had a communist regime which has looked at their own model and gone, you know what, this doesn't really work, let's let's change it. Um, it's almost always been forced upon them by a revolutionary change um, where, where they've been disrupted by violence and by force. That's that's kind of true because it's, just, it's, it's, it's how humans' minds work. And so it's true in business and it's true in markets and it's true in politics um, that you have – it's – it's it's like the guy on the train. He's not going to be the guy necessarily to realize that the the, uh, the baseball is um, is is not stationary. It takes um, it takes a viewpoint from the outside to understand that, and um, and um, so you you see that taking place where disruption is is almost always coming from a sector that um, that is not um, it's not within the realm of the sector being disrupted. Um, whether it be politics or, or business, that, that seems to be the case. Um, one of the things that I wanted to quickly cover with you, Jeff, was we have this, you know, one of the problems that um, I think we all have in today's society is um, it's no longer a matter of um, having uh, no access to information. Literally 20, 30 years ago, you needed to go to the library, you need to, um, to in order to access um, some of the world's best education, you a probably need to live in a um, a developed world, and then b you would need to get to a library of some some sorts. And that's not a, all the case anymore. Today, you can be a Kalahari Bushman, and you can access the same sort of information that the president of the United States could access literally 15, 20 years ago, which is which is truly remarkable. But it exists. Um, but with that comes this this bombardment of uh, annual reports and presentations and articles and books and everything else. How would you efficiently try to try to prioritize information and secondly how would you efficiently go about reading it so I know you, you've made you made an article you wrote an article about covering 25 pages a day so I wonder if you just cover those topics sure um, I, I think you know we actually just uh, we put out a course recently called how to read a book uh, uh, on Farm Street which just kind of covers the same territory and you know the, the major point is to say that you have to realize that like everything in life, 
reading has opportunity costs attached to it. So the time you spend reading, you know, articles online, for example, is time that you're not spending reading something deeper and, and more long lived like a book. And I think a book is still the best, in my opinion, it's still the best technology for, for, you know, getting across a certain amount of wisdom um, because a book has a distinct structure to it. Uh, it's been thought through very deeply by its author or authors. It's, it's gone through several filters. It's gone through editing process. Um, you know, the manuscript has probably been looked at by a number of people. It's been criticized. And I think that level of thoughtfulness is not really at play uh, in very few other mediums. So, you know, I, I think if you read an article in the New Yorker, you're probably getting a similar level of thoughtfulness, but, um, you know, it kind of goes downhill from there in uh, shorter mediums than books. So, you know, if, if you agree with me that the book is still the, the, the best technology um, to learn from, then you would naturally want to prioritize them, right? I think that's a pretty, pretty obvious concept. Um, I think that a lot of people just don't really l- think it through ahead of time. They just, you know, the, they're distracted by what the internet is giving them and um, they kind of just take it instead of, instead of saying, you know what, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm not going to, just because of the, the social media tools uh, are available um, and the flood of information is available on the internet doesn't mean that you need to subject yourself to it. And, and then no one really seems to think like that now. It's just like any tools that comes out or any, you know, new flood of information that comes out is seen as a, is seen as a, a positive, but people are not asking themselves what they're losing when they open the fire hose. And what you're losing is the ability to focus deeply on, on a structured piece of work like a book. And so I think that in the modern, you know, modern age, you, you can't necessarily turn off the hose completely. But you can you can say, look, I, I'm going to give my first. I'm going to sort of pay myself first. And the reason why I wrote 25 pages a day article was to say that you have to you have to build it into your routine. You know, reading long books, for example, is not going to happen by accident. You know, I I did the math and I figured out that reading this book called The Power Broker, which is a, a really fabulous book, was going to take me almost 40 hours uh, of my time. Now there would be 40 well spent hours, in my opinion, but um, you know, in order to get those, get the hours done, you're going to have to make it a habit. It's just not going to happen, you know, if you just pick it up uh, whenever you feel like it. And developing those those habits of, of working at it every day and, you know, spending some time every day reading, uh, reading deeply into some subject or reading a book that really takes some time to get through, I think is a really great habit. And, and another point of that article was to say that even only if you give it 25 pages a day or an hour a day or whatever you choose, in a year, you're going to get through an, an enormous amount of material. And in five years, you're going to get through an even more enormous amount of material. And in 10 or 20 years, you'll be one of the few people on the planet, really, who's done who's done a significant amount of deep learning, you know, at a pretty modest pace. It's, it's available to everybody. You just have to, you just have to sit down and do it. It's discipline, um, which is, uh, which is imperative in uh, becoming proficient in anything. And, you know, you talk about the creation of habits. I think that that is one of the most important things to do as well. Um, because without the habit, you don't, you don't accumulate that, um, that quantity of knowledge. And it's also, it becomes cumulative. So for example, if you, if you go back and you, you've read a book, then you, you, you might, it's, it's like a diet, right? So you decide, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to you know, cut back on the amount of food that I eat or the amount of junk food or whatever it is. And you do it for two or three months. 
um, your body is, is better for it, your mind is better for it, but if you then filter back into, um, into bad habits after that, literally within another two months, you're actually back to um, where we started before. And so the, the value that you'd gained for the previous two months is, is lost. And I think our minds work in a sort of similar fashion. You, can, you, can, you need to train your mind to consistently be achieving. And so if you, if you develop that skill set to, on a continuous basis, seek out and develop additional knowledge, um, it's training your mind to do that, and, and you, the, the knowledge becomes cumulative. If you just do it for a short period of time, and then go, eh, you know, I'm just going to go back to um, watching sitcoms and um, staring at YouTube videos of Kim Kardashian, then you know, within a pretty short time frame, um, you, you're going to be back to where you started. So it's um, it, it requires a discipline, and it requires a um, a habit. Um, so what? Jeff, I wanted to ask you, what's, in your opinion, what are some of the most sort of underappreciated resources on decision-making or mental models that, apart from Farnham Weekly? Well, yeah, so Farnham Street has a weekly newsletter, and, and I, you know, obviously people who are interested in the subject tend to, uh, tend to read that. I think the best things that have been written on decision-making are, are really in the form of books. Um, I, I think that anybody who hasn't read a speech called The Psychology of Human Misjudgment from, poor, from a book called Poor Charlie's Almanac, which was put together by a man named Peter Kaufman, who runs a company in California called Glen Eyre, um, and is a friend of, of Munger's. Um, you know, I think that the psychology of human misjudgment is not, it, it, it gets, I want to say, in the, in the Berkshire Hathaway groupie community, if you want to call it that, a lot of, you know, it's very well known. But if you were to go out into the wider world, it's very little known. Um, and the reason probably is because it's not a work by an academic, a professional academic. It's a work by a, you know, a, he must've given, he must've been 80 years old when he gave the speech or, or something like between 70 and 80 years old, uh, businessman. So it, it's not, it's not, con, you know, may, may not be considered, um, in the same league as something written by a, a social psychologist to the PhD from Harvard, like a, you know, a, uh, a Steven Pinker, you know, right. or something like that, an evolutionary biologist, but it's still, an, it's still probably the best, in my opinion, the best summation of uh, what causes us to make the errors that we make. Um, and, and so if you start with that and from there that, you know, other ones that I've really enjoyed and, I, you know, I don't think I have anything brand new to offer people, you know, if you read Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman, it, you know, and, and you read, there's a book called Explaining Social Behavior by, I believe it, the guy's name is Elster, really amazing book. And, you know, and all these, what are, what all these sources are doing Oh, and before I forget, another one I like is by Dan Ariely. Um, it's called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Ariely is very good at sort of explaining uh, uh, how situational dis- dishonesty can be. Uh, we think we're honest, but then in some situations we're willing to cut corners, which I think is a very fascinating argument. But um, but anyways, you know, all of these things are really ways of putting together a bag of tools to deal with yourself. None of them have any grand underlying synthesis, although I suspect if there is any grand synthesis, it's it's going to come from it may come from evolutionary biology, but regardless of that, um, what we really need is just this bag of tools to understand why we make bad decisions. More so than that, you know, you can't just be aware of it. Being aware of them, the biases, isn't necessarily a fix. Uh, it's a good step in the right direction, but the real way to fix it is you, you need to develop systems to beat yourself. And as an obvious, obvious example of a system everybody knows, you could think of, you know, grandma's rule 
uh, that Mung- which Munger calls it, which is, you know, sort of you have to eat your carrots before you eat your dessert. And it's just that's just a basic system to get you to eat, to eat more healthy. You know, we all may know that carrots are healthier than cake, but we still need a system to get us to eat the carrots. And and you kind of need to take that model and apply it to all the other biases in your decision making. And uh, obviously can't all address those all in one short podcast. But I think using that mental model, you can kind of get yourself, start getting yourself and going in the right direction. Those are all excellent points, Jeff. Um, I really appreciate your time and um, absolutely love to get uh, get on another call with you at some point and cover off some more of these topics. There's a whole lot more that I'd love to be able to discuss. Um, but I want to appreciate, I want to thank you for your time and I really appreciate your insights. It's a fascinating um, sector for me to investigate i think anybody that wants to be better at anything that it is that they do um really needs to uh, focus on 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 their thought processes and and making them better and stronger and more robust um and you guys have got a a fantastic resource to um, get people on the road to do that so um i congratulate you on what you guys have already built and i'm pretty excited to see the other things that you've probably got coming down the pike as well Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you for tuning in. CapEx Big Question Podcast is sponsored by Serif, an exclusive, private, global network of individual investors and family offices dedicated to growing their wealth exponentially by investing in game-changing global trends. To learn more about Serif, go to serif.vc. That's S-E-R-A-P-H dot V for Vicky, C for Charlie.